Hi, everybody. I'm Jill Wagner, and you are listening to a special edition of the Mo News Podcast. There have been a lot of really troubling headlines recently about the declining mental health of teens and the increasing rates of depression and suicide, particularly amongst teenage girls. So what's behind it? And more importantly, what can we do about it? I am joined today by Nero Feliciano, a cognitive psychotherapist and best-selling author. You could often see her speaking on the third hour of the Today Show, NBC News Now, and also in print on Oprah Daily, Parents.com, InStyle, and Real Simple Magazine, where she shares tips and strategies around mental health and parenting. And she's also the author of This Book Won't Make You Happy, Eight Keys to Finding True Contentment. I love that title, by the way. Um, and she hosts her own podcast. It's called All Things Life. Nero, great to have you on. Thank you, Jill. Great to see you again. Okay, so I want to just set the stage a bit here. The CDC recently released some really startling statistics. According to surveys, 57% of female teens in the U.S. struggled with feeling persistently sad. And this is as of 2021. And this is the last time that that survey was done. Of the women surveyed, 30% considered suicide, 24% planned suicide, and 13% attempted it. And these numbers are up dramatically from just a decade ago. The rate for teen boys, not quite at this level, but it is still climbing and it's jarringly high. That CDC survey is conducted every two years and the rates of mental health problems have gone up with every single report since 2011. So sometimes the media, and admittedly, I am part of the media, we overhype stories or we paint these pictures of doom and gloom. How would you, as an expert here, describe the current status of teen mental health? There is no overhype here. All of those statistics are completely accurate, and we're seeing it in practices. Right now, if you look for a therapist for teens, you're going to be hard-pressed to find one that has availability. And that's why these conversations are so important. So one that we have an awareness that this is a problem. The Surgeon General said mental health is our next epidemic, and, and we're in it right now. And it's important that parents have the tools to be able to navigate it. Okay, so what is going on here? What do you attribute this really insane rise uh, in mental health issues in just the past 10 years or so? What do you attribute that to? So it's a confluence of many factors, but I'm going to boil it down to it is a lot harder to grow up as a kid now than it was when we were kids. I'm, I'm turning 47 in a week. And it's in a very different world than what it is now. And social media and devices absolutely have contributed to this. One thing we know, the rise of social media platforms happened in 2012. There was a very, very clear correlation between the decline of adolescent mental health in that year, and it has increased every year since. So we believe that it has to do with social media, the way social media is strategically designed to keep adults and kids and children addicted. And part of that is because of the dopamine circuits in our brain that it hijacks. Dopamine affects our motivation. It is that constant feeling of, this is really good. I need to do this more. That is controlled by companies that have incredible minds working behind it. And now we're giving kids devices that most of them have access to all the time, which are reprogramming their brain in a certain way to constantly go to it. 
reprogramming their brain sounds really, really frightening. Could you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, from a psychological perspective, that is what's happening. So kids have a higher rate of neuroplasticity than adults, meaning our brain can change depending on the environment, what we're experiencing, what it's stimulated by. And that happens at faster rates with kids. So think of it this way, whatever you look at, whatever you think about grows in your brain, we create pathways to support that. So the more we're going to social media, the more we experience that dopamine rush, that um, surge of motivation to do whatever that is, again, the more we create more pathways in our brain to support it. So in that sense, we are reprogramming our brain around those behaviors and the need for those behaviors. And like I said, that happens much faster in kids than adults. So their brains as adults are going to look very different than ours did growing up um, in a different generation. And just back to my original question, you were mentioning that there were a couple of reasons that social media is so harmful for kids, especially girls. So think about it. When, when you're going to social media, what are they seeing? They're seeing... Um, perfection in many ways, highlight reels, body image, um, unrealistic standards of beauty that are filtered through apps and, and what have you. This is why we're seeing, I think, girls affected. There are other reasons as well. I think girls um, are more vulnerable on social media. Their connections are um, centered around comments, conversations about things that are personal. When you look at what boys comment on, for example, I have um, a 16, 14, uh, 11-year-old, and a nine-year-old in my house. I have one son and three daughters. My son is communicating on social media about sports teams, about athletes they like. My girls are having actual conversations with other females. So that leaves them more vulnerable. So what we're looking at social media, standards of beauty, achievement, success, all of these things are influencing their self-perception, comparison. What are other people doing? What do they have compared to what I have? And then, of course, constant information about stressful events in the world. Um, I'll give you one example. And I didn't even realize how it was affecting my teens to this extent. But we were in Australia this summer. And my now 16-year-old, we were walking down the street. And she said to me, can you imagine living in a country where you don't have to be worried about being shot walking down the street. Now, she had never mentioned this, but these kids have grown up in a climate where school shootings are common. I was thinking that maybe they're a little desensitized to this, but that comment made me think otherwise. This is on the forefront of their brain and creating stress constantly because of the constant exposure. I want to get back to that in a little bit, because one of the theories that you hear, especially from social media companies themselves who, who don't necessarily want to make this link uh, between declining mental health and social media use, is that the world is just kind of a worse place that, you know, we've got more school violence, mass shootings, etc. Does that factor in? There certainly are more mass shootings, but we've had very disturbing world events forever. It's just we didn't know about them all the time. We weren't taken into the lives of people suffering, and we didn't have access to that 24-7. So our awareness of these things and of people suffering and of people being affected has changed now because of social media. So I, I don't think it's because the world is necessarily worse. Yes, there are certain things that are worse, climate, you know, this uh, prevalence of school shootings, but there have been tragedy and disaster for I mean, for as long as we've been in existence. 
So when it comes to social media, there's a lot of platforms out there. You've got Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram. Are any better or worse when it comes to mental health? I'll tell you what I've observed. I think all of them have a profound negative impact on mental health. There are positives to it. We can talk about that in a minute. But I do think I see with kids Snapchat being one of the things that impact them um, the heaviest. And part of that is, is you can post something and then it disappears. Now, kids know this and they also know that when they post something, someone can screenshot it. It can be distributed. It can live forever. But kids have an impulsivity naturally that mimics bipolar. That's how impulsive kids are naturally. Their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. That's their center of decision-making and emotional regulation until they're about 25 years old. So they're constantly being led and driven by impulse and emotion. And what happens when they think that it disappears is it removes that idea of consequence. I don't really have to think about it because it's going to be gone um, soon. So Snapchat, opposed to something that is more permanent in posting, um, affects them differently. There tends to be more impulsivity there. The other thing about Snapchat, which I've noticed, is that kids can see where all their friends are on that Snap map. It doesn't matter if you're out of the country, kids can still see where their friends are and what they're doing. If they're all hanging out at one house, kids can see that. So it has created this excessive FOMO, this fear of missing out. I actually wrote about all of this in my book a year ago. And it helps, it makes them feel isolated. It makes them feel alone, that they're not included. And that's a huge challenge that kids navigate in adolescence. We navigated it too. We knew what it felt like to not be included. We just didn't know all the time when we were not included. Someone may have had a party. We didn't hear about it at all. Or maybe a week later, kids know in real time when this is happening. And that really has affected their mental health. I've seen kids have panic attacks in sessions, literal panic attacks, when they have a notification go off on Snapchat, seeing all their friends at a party and they're not there. I can't even imagine, actually. Even as an adult, if somebody is posting a picture Mm -hmm. of other moms and they're at an event that I wasn't at, you still get that kind of FOMO. And it's an event I maybe even didn't want to go to, but you're still just like, why wasn't I included? Why didn't anybody ask me about it? Yes. So uh, this is what I wrote in my book. I have the same conversations with 12-year-olds than I do 40-year-olds with three kids. Because we all as humans have this need for belonging. It is one of our deepest human needs. We want to belong. We want to be accepted. And seeing those things make us question, do we really belong? That's a great question to ask yourself if you feel you see something and it triggers that feeling. Ask yourself first, would I even want to be there? Do I even really like these people? Do I even really have those connections um, with these people? Because it just brings us back to a perspective we need to navigate those situations. What if you would want to be there though? Like what if you Mm -hmm. saw that there was an event and you're like, you know what? I feel bad that I'm not there. And that's something I would want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, One, we have to learn how to accept that and, and accept those. Acceptance is a really powerful practice. I wasn't included. Does that mean that none of these people care about me? We have to look into that question and also perhaps think about, this is what I told my daughter who's 11 in middle school, who's navigating this situation. You're not going to be included in every single event. Think about times where you've included some people and not others. And it wasn't because you didn't like them, 
but it just so happened the circumstances were that you weren't. Maybe this was something impromptu. Maybe this was something that just happened that looked like it was premeditated and planned, you know, to exclude you, but it wasn't. We don't know the whole story. And if it was, if they really did exclude you, maybe they're not the friends that you thought they were. And then it's time to refocus our efforts into other friendships. What about the smartphone as a device in general? Because when we were talking a few days ago, just to prep for this interview, you mentioned a story that your daughter had said to you that she was having a hard time focusing and concentrating. Mm -hmm. And you think that may not have necessarily had to do with social media, but just perhaps always looking at a phone. Yes. Because what she told me is I have a hard time reading when it's on paper. I can't focus. And on a phone, she was talking about how she can Zoom. And the the pathways to reading on a screen are actually different than reading on paper. There's some similarities, but we know we can do different things on a screen. We're stimulated differently on a screen. We can click on a link and go to something else. And that kind of keeps our attention. So we don't have that when we're looking on paper. It has changed the way that we learn. I know for me, when I was writing my book and everything is online, all the research articles are online. I, for the first month, developed tension headaches because I was not used to learning like that. When I was in school, everything was in textbooks. And kids are experiencing similar symptoms for the reverse because they've been on screens. And that also you know, can affect how they're reading regular books. But neurologists have also reported higher um, incidence of headaches, seizures, um, migraines I've even seen in kids because of this excessive screen use both at home and in school because they're learning on screens in school as well. What, one thing just about devices and social media in general to think about, and this presented in my office yesterday, I was, I was working with a college student who came in and the first thing she said, I could tell definite depressive mood symptoms, but she kept talking about, I don't have any motivation. I don't have any motivation. Well, 10 years ago, we would look at motivation and say, oh, we need to screen this kid for depression. We still do. But part of what we have to understand with phones is this constant dopamine dump increases motivation in certain areas. So when people are called to do things where they don't get that constant dopamine, they have a hard time motivating to do it. It loses their attention. Their attention spans have gotten shorter. It's harder for them to focus. So later on in the session, she told me, I have trouble getting off my phone. I know that it's mindless and I know that it's part of why I'm feeling this way, but I can't disconnect from it. So before, and this child has been on medication before and come off it. And and my thought was before we go back to medication, let's really regulate phone use. Let's think of strategies to figure out how to come off your phone and um, see if your mood improves and your motivation improves. And my guess is that it will actually, if we, if we seriously focus treatment around that. When, when I've had patients who suffer from anxiety, one of the things I recommend is take a social media detox. I have not in 10 years had one patient come back saying they didn't feel better when they did that. Because there's also, not only what we're seeing is anxiety producing, but there's also this low level of anxiety from the feeling of constantly having to check your phone, to go back to your phone, feeling like your phone, there's something there that's calling you, calling your name, and you need to go to it. There's anxiety that's created just from that behavior. I'm just 
so reconsidering a lot of my habits right now um, <laughs> in a real way as we're talking. Okay, so I guess the natural question here, and, and I teased this interview on social media, as did Mosh, and we got tons of questions from parents. And the biggest question that we got is what do we do, right? The genie is sort of out of the bottle. How do we rein this back in? Okay, so this is a really good question. And I'm going to just give you a very practical example for my own life. Three of my kids got phones when they went to middle school. They got smartphones when they went to middle school. And we did not have the body of research that we have now. I think one of the things you asked me to just about your own little girl was, does it impact early on? And again, when you think about that pathway creation, yes, it does. We're also seeing a change in literacy rates very young. Kids are not growing in terms of literacy at the rates they used to and having a harder time using expressive language. So even the littles, screen time, not necessarily phone, is affecting them and their attention span and concentration. How do we reel it in? So my three older kids got phones. I told my third grader after all this research came out, um, we had this conversation a month ago. I was like, Carolina, I am so sorry, but you're not getting a phone when you go to middle school. Talk about unfair. Your three siblings did. I said, we did not know. We did not know what we knew then. And it's my job to keep you safe. It's my job to, to ensure that you are as smart as you can be when you get to middle school and high school. And these are things now that we know that affect that. She ranted up for, for like three days and then <laughs> she accepted it. I said, we'll probably get you like a smart watch so that you can call us and communicate with us. We'll probably give you something where you can contact us, whether that's a phone without social media. All my kids, regardless, I told them no social media till you're older. What age specifically? So the Surgeon General says 16, 17. Good luck with that because <laughs> I don't know any 17-year-old that's not on social media. We have to give them tools to navigate social media. But I, I, my said 13, 14. And it depends on your behavior and the maturity that you show me at that age um, to be able to approve it. So what do we do about it? You can rein it back. It is going to necessitate having hard conversations, but we're the parents. If we know something's harmful for them, we're going to have to make rules without their agreement. We can explain to them. I find that kids, especially older ones who are invested in school, who want to do well in sports, um, they can understand these conversations. They're hard. But I, I even sat down with my family last week and told my older kids, look, I'm just going to give you the info. This is what it does to your motivation. This is what is your concentration. We have studies to show that kids who do present with anxiety and depression also correlate to higher phone usages and social media use. So we know that correlation's there. And, and I said, I'm not going to be able to police your phone forever. So I need you to take responsibility for this. We're going to check our screen time use, even mom and dads, every Sunday to see where we're at. And how are they doing? <laughs> um, you know, there's some weeks that are good. Um, they're always pointing to me and saying, mom, you're on your phone all the time. And, and yeah. my excuse is I'm working on my phone, <laughs> but let me tell you, let me tell you, even if I'm working, they still see me on my phone. So I think number one, we have to model the right behavior. You know, we have to make sure the messages that we're talking about are the messages that we're living out. So I'm about to get a flip phone that does not have social media on it. And part of that is oh, I need time where people don't contact me too. You know, a lot of people have a lot of access to me and that takes away from my family and being present with them. Um, I, I got a smartwatch. So when they come home, 
I'm trying to leave my phone upstairs and just use my smartwatch because I have a lot of a hard time texting on that. Um, and I can't go on the internet very well on that. So that's kept me aware to model that behavior. That is a good idea, though, because I know there's a lot of parents who think I want my kids to be able to call me. You know, that's the big yes. reason yeah. that they get me the too. phone um, mm-hmm. and getting them sort of a smartwatch that they can make those calls on, I think is helpful. Yeah. Or a phone. I mean, you know, I think a smartwatch is better than a flip phone because they just really are not going to look cool if all their friends have an <laughs> iPhone and they have a flip phone. But a smartwatch, you can um, kind of get some agreement in that. Um, one of the one of the things that have come out from teenagers in terms of navigating social media, the increase in mental health issues, is they need a trusted adult in their life who they can talk to. So us as parents learning how to become that trusted adult, learning what it means to empathize with a kid, learning how to be present when they're talking to you. That And again, like I said, it's a confluence of factors. Phones affect us from being present. So we have to look at the things that are affecting our ability to be that trusted adult in their life and work on our behaviors as well. And then we might be able to get more of a buy-in from them. I've seen some tips where it says, you know, take the phone away an hour before bed or don't let the kids mm-hmm. sleep with the phone in their bedroom because it's interrupting sleep. Um, yeah. Limit it to X amount of time. Are you on board with any of those? Do you think those are realistic and are you, anything to add to that list? I think they're very realistic. And for parents um, like myself who've allowed phones in the bedroom at night, it's time to take them out. So what we can say, what I've told my kids, because their big excuse is, oh, my alarm is on my phone. I'm going to get you an alarm clock, you know, here. (laughs) We're going to go old school or get an Alexa or Hey Google, which has an alarm clock on it. Because what happens is they don't silence their notifications. There are kids who are going to call them and text them at one o'clock in the morning. I've seen this for years in practice. And they are attuned to that notification because that is their cue that there's dopamine coming. And that notification triggers dopamine in and of itself. So it interrupts their sleep. An hour before, if you can get to two hours before is even better, but an hour before, have a bedtime for everyone's phone in the house, including your own. You know, leave your phones in a charging <laughs> station. I can't do it. <laughs> I, I know, Jill. It's it's hard. Um, you know, we I have I have silenced my notifications for years. And I've silenced it at night because I would have patients text me at one in the morning, you know, or, or call. I, I tell them, you know, call 911 at one, not me, <laughs> you know. But um, so my husband has his phone in the room because it's really not an issue for him. But the rest of our phones um, are out. And when you can model that, it's very powerful for the kids. Other rules for kids, have family times where there's no phones. You know, tell them when we're, when we're as a family, no phones, even car trips, I've noticed when I was in the car with my family growing up, we listened to those like books on tape with like the ding to turn the page. Everybody's on their device and their phone, even set aside part of the car trip with no phones. Talk. Okay. We're going to put our phones away. We're going to talk about these things, (laughs) ask questions, you know, and then maybe go on devices. I know some parents are like, I cannot imagine a car trip without a device right now. I, I, I get that. Um, meal times, no phones, put them away. Get them conditioned to having times in their day where they are without their phone. And when you have teenagers, tell them, like I tell my teenagers, um, if you feel like you constantly have to check your phone, that's when the problem starts. Do you feel that way? Let's talk about that when you do. I feel that way sometimes. We have to empathize um, with them so they know that this is not just their problem. This is your problem too. It's all of our problem as a family. 
one of the questions that I got that I can relate to is is about toddlers. And is there anything, mm. how do you instill healthy smartphone use at that age? You know, just four or five years old, six years old, a lot of parents use iPads and smartphones as a distraction tool, just to make their lives a little bit easier. If you're at a restaurant, you say, all right, you take the phone, you could be on it for 20 minutes, and then at least the adults can enjoy their meal. Or yeah. if you have an appointment, they give the kid the phone. Any advice for kind of navigating those toddler years to help them develop healthier relationships to their smartphone? Yeah. And you know, like it's it's part of how we raise kids now and also part of how we preserve our mental health as parents, yeah. having kids have some screen time. And it's it's never really been limited screen time has been the issue. It's limiting the screen time that is the issue. I remember 16 years ago taking an iPad to a restaurant for my child so we could have dinner. And that kid may have been on it for an hour, not just 20 minutes or whatever it is. But I think that's a good suggestion. Really be cognizant of how much screen time your kid is getting and how they behave when you take it away. That is key to see where the problem is. You know, I've had kids in my household that have had complete meltdowns at a young age when we've taken the phone away. We have to make it clear to them as soon as they can understand that I'm going to give this to you, but we're going to take it away. And if if we can't regulate and we have to show them how to regulate, you know, what can you do at that point when that's taken away? But you're not going to get more of it. Now, kids are fairly young when they can begin to understand that. When they're even younger, when they can't understand that, we have to regulate it for them. So maybe even have some days where this is the thing. If you take that away, who are they going to want? You, you, they're going to want you. They're going to want, you know, they're going to want you to be with them and play with them. And this even happens at older ages. Um, We have to also set aside time where they can have us, you know, look, this is my time with you. We're going to play. One thing I've done for my kids is sat with them and made a list that we put up somewhere of all the things they can do that they enjoy doing by themselves or with a sibling, or with me, that they can go to instead of a device. Because in that moment, they can't think about anything else other than the device. What else do I like to do? I don't know. They don't know how to be bored. You and I have been talking about being bored. Okay, so on that note, I just, I, my daughter has said that to me before. She goes, I'm bored. And I'm like, tough noogies, be bored. I don't <laughs> care. You know, it's because it's good to be bored. I'm not yeah. being this unloving mother, but I, yeah, there are worse things good. in life than being bored. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. And I blame Peppa Pig a hundred percent. That's where it starts our, our kids. I kept hearing waiting is boring, you know, all day. So, you know, that's, that's where they get it from. But boredom is the birthplace of creativity. When kids are forced to be bored, they get creative. And when we've taken away their ability to be bored and adults, by the way, how many of us are waiting in line at the grocery store and we jump on our phones? right? To do things. We can't be bored. We can't just sit there and be present and take in our surroundings. So kids are having an even harder time doing this than we are. They develop their imagination. They develop their ability to do things that they wouldn't think of otherwise. And when they have a constant distraction, we take away that ability to be bored and therefore be creative and be imaginative. Um, I remember one day, we told our kids no screens. They were younger. And we, we said to them, we're all coming out to clean out our garage. I mean, talk about the most boring thing you could do. But they had no choice. And all of a sudden, I saw them find this camping tent. They took it out. They set it up in our backyard. It was like the middle of the afternoon. Right. Our weekend. 
And they were playing in the tent because they had no other option. They figured out kids have a biological drive to play. If you let them be bored long enough, they will figure out what to do in that moment. So boredom is important. Okay, we've got more coming up with Nero Feliciano and this really important discussion about mental health. But for now, let's take a quick break for our sponsors. Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Moshe and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 15%, 15% off your order. Back just to social media and teen depression Mm. right now. And this is actually even for kids, but I don't know if the symptoms are the same. What should parents be looking for? If they Mm -hmm. feel that their child, you know, if just say their teen doesn't come to them and say, you know, mom, dad, I'm suffering from depression. I'm suicidal or, or I'm having these thoughts. Are there warning signs? And and is there anything that kind of leads up to that? Because I'm sure that they just don't wake up one morning and feel that way. Yeah, um, there are definite warning signs. How connected are they to their peers? Um, are they making time for in-person, face-to-face connection? We've lost that often, not only with the busyness um, and the drive towards achievement that this culture has placed on our kids, but because of pandemic, the um, how they've gotten accustomed to communicating on phones and screens. So is there in-person connection? Do they have friends? That is huge because once they start to isolate, when they want to be alone, when they want to be in their room, when they don't want to do anything and they're losing motivation, those are big warning signs that we need to intervene. If they're having trouble academically and they were not a kid who had that challenge, that's a that's a warning sign. When they have difficulty engaging in the normal parts of their life that they once did, um, and especially losing motivation for things that they once enjoyed, big signs for depression. And that's when we intervene. And and I always tell parents, don't be afraid to ask, do you ever think about hurting yourself? Because we need to know. And asking what we know from the research does not encourage the behavior. It actually enables them to begin to talk about it and not keep it to themselves. When you say intervene, what do you mean by that? How should a parent intervene? Yeah. When can we reconnect them with those things? that were meaningful to them? Can we reconnect them with friends? Can we help them and encourage them to be with friends and develop those relationships? Can we connect them to the things that they enjoy that they are no longer doing? That's important. When And what I would say with kids is please intervene professionally sooner than later. 
always say it's easier to pull someone out of a pothole than a ditch. And, and that's true for mental health. You know, we want to intervene soon. And again, like I said, because kids' brains are neuroplastic and, and they can change so rapidly, early intervention makes a big difference for kids. Get a professional. Um, you can, what I find amazing is when people go on their Facebook pages or Tom Facebook pages and ask for therapists, people shout them out. Like I said, like a five star review on Yelp right. for Chinese takeout. Like they talk about their therapists like that. Betterhelp.com is one option. Um, psychologytoday.com has a find a therapist tool in your area. That's a great place to start psychologytoday.com and ask friends. Um, a lot of teachers actually wrote in and said, what should they do if they start to see these types of behavior in the class? They want to help. They just don't really know how. Teachers are the best people on earth and they're so overworked and overwhelmed and same with school counselors. But if they can make one-on-one time for the kid, they are probably one of the people who has the power to impact that child the most. Talk to them, ask them what they're going through, what's going on. Ask those questions. Do you ever think about hurting yourself? Um, What would make a difference in you feeling happier here at school or at home? These are important questions to ask. And if a kid responds, that they are thinking about hurting themselves, you want to ask them, have you thought about what they would do? Because once they have a plan, that risk goes up significantly and you want to intervene right away with some professional help. So many kids are on medication now. How do you know when your kid should be on some type of medication versus just giving them therapy or a change in behavior? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a conversation to have with your therapist. A therapist can assess pretty quickly about the need for medication And whether we're dealing with ADHD or depression or anxiety, when it comes to the point where you're talking about all of these things that will help them, but they just don't have the motivation to do it, or the anxiety is so high that they can't process these cognitive skills, medication can really be helpful to at least give them the boost they need in motivation and mood to begin to then employ those therapeutic techniques. When they're so depressed and anxious where they just can't even begin to fathom, like the ther- therapy seems overwhelming. I can't, I don't even know where to start. Everything seems overwhelming or I'm so anxious that I can't even think about these things, let alone do them. We're, we need to have the conversation on medication. Um, back to what you were saying, though, about some of the warning signs, it, kind of not having plans with friends and, and really withdrawing from society. I heard one expert talk about the problem with smartphones and social media. It isn't just what they're doing on the phones. It's also what they're not doing with the amount of time that they're spending on their phones. That's right. That's exactly right. It takes up so much of their time, so much of their time. And, you know, I had a conversation with my middle schooler, my 11-year-old, who really hates every time we talk about how much we look at her usage time when she says, Oh my gosh, I've spent three hours on YouTube or an hour and a half on TikTok. She'll go and delete the apps. Like she really doesn't like seeing that behavior. Just how most adults, when we're aware of it, we don't like it either. But what we have to talk to them about is what can you do instead? What do you like? This child is super creative. You know, we started looking at different types of art sets to get her. They need ideas because, again, it kind of sucks your ability to be creative. So we have to help them think of things. Instead of the phone, what what can you do that you enjoy? Let's put a plan in place for you because we're at that point where they need plans in place for replacement behaviors that can also be satisfying, fulfilling, 
and stimulating. Okay, so we talked about the warning signs for older kids, but for young kids, what are some of the warning signs there and and how young could kids be when they start to develop you know, and experience some type of depression? I imagine that their symptoms might look a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, you can have kids experiencing this as young as four or five years old, really young. They don't have the vocabulary to articulate it. But again, if they're having trouble doing the normal things in their kid life that is expected of them, resisting, fighting it, um, excessive tantrums, and that's not just due to depression, that can be developmental as well. Um, Predominant fears, they're worried all the time. They're talking about things that are scary for them. And then physically presenting with symptoms, stomach ache, headache, Um, Those two are big in terms of symptoms for anxiety and even some depression. Depression often presents as anger in children and even in adolescents. So when there's excessive anger, we have to screen for depression in those cases as well. So would you just tell your pediatrician? What's the best? Yes. Talking to your pediatrician is absolutely the right thing to do in that case. And if you don't have an appointment scheduled, put in a phone call, schedule an appointment around that concern. It's worth a visit to to address it and address it early. Besides for the phone and, and social media, um, of course, we just had the pandemic that was in, is still going on, actually, you know, in, in many places. Do you attribute, is there anything else, are there any other factors that are impacting mental health right now? Because it, it's really across the board. It's teens, it's yeah. adults. Why are we in such this horrible state when it comes to mental health? And is it just that we're more aware of it as well? I think, yes, we are more aware of it. There is more of this dependence on devices, which also came through the pandemic because it was our way to communicate. But we've gotten really comfortable in our homes and having less apt to go out and connect in person. Some people love it. But for those of us who are introverts or introverted extroverts, we're thinking twice about those things. And there are a lot of people out there who become more introverted because of the pandemic, right? So when our connection to other people, in-person connection is compromised, so is our well-being. Our longest study on well-being, the Harvard grant study, I think it's been renamed, but over 80 years studying well-being shows that well-being is connected to connection. Isolation and loneliness is as toxic for our physical health as alcoholism and smoking. So connection is really important. So fostering connection um, and our ability to do that has been compromised, not only through the pandemic, but also through this culture of busyness that we live in, achievement, um, our drive to be more, do more, have more. That has also limited the amount of free time we have for connection. For kids, when they're FaceTiming, that's actually better than just messaging. And a lot of them DM and message. Why that is, because they're so scheduled and busy, they have less time to play unstructured. Um, They have less time to see their peers face-to-face in a play-type situation. That has affected their ability to develop empathy to read social, emotional cues. And then what we're seeing um, in the research is as these generations progress, they're becoming less empathetic and more narcissistic, more narcissistic qualities. You pair that 
um, lack of face-to-face time connection with the rise of selfie culture. And it's a little bit of a disaster, you know, and, and I hate to be like, oh, gloom and doom or whatever. We can do things about it, but we have to recognize why it's happening so that we ourselves develop the motivation to do the thing about it. So I'm glad that you mentioned happiness because I do want to talk about that. And I want to talk about your book. I love the title. It's called This Book Won't Make You Happy. So what does make somebody happy or at the very least content? Yeah, well, we've just talked about all the factors that affected why we're not happy. And and that is why I talked about all of them in the book, because it has everything to do with why we're not feeling happy. And And the title was a little play because the book actually made a lot of people happy from what I've heard. <laughs> I, I had people saying, you know, um, I haven't been happy in a long time. And this book helped me to find it. And part of that is because our cultural definition of happiness really has to do with being more, having more, doing more, accomplishing, striving, achieving. And that's what we believe is creating this epidemic of anxiety, not just in kids and adults. So what what I focused on was contentment. And just just to for for someone struggling with any sort of mental illness, the idea of happiness seems so far away and so unreachable. Contentment is a concept that more people can grasp. And and when we think about contentment, the way I defined it in the book was if happiness is having everything you want, contentment is wanting everything you have. So so to be content means we're attuned to be able to appreciate the things that are already good in our life, that have an impact on well-being, and that make us feel satisfied without stress. And, And there are many things in life that can do that for us if we develop the practices to be able to know what they are, to be aware of them. Like what? What are things that content people do? Um, they're grateful. Content people are grateful. They they know what they have in their life to be grateful about. They know what they have that other people are only dreaming about right now. For example, your health, loved ones, connection, relationships. They know what they can do that helps them to feel grateful. Um, the ability to um, meet up with a friend, the ability to take a walk on a beautiful day, the ability to go to the beach or watch a sunset and see how those things are satisfied, how your coffee tastes in the morning, the first few sips, those things, if we pay attention to it, have incredible power to change not only our emotional mental health, but our physical health. I talk about gratitude so much because it's so simple and people don't realize how powerful it is. There's a study that talks about cardiac patients after heart failure. Those who kept gratitude journals eight weeks later saw lower rates of inflammation than people who didn't. It is that physically transforming. And when we minimize it, like it's a nice thing to do. No, it's literally life-changing in many different ways. So in a practical sense, how does that work? I've heard, you know, maybe write down two or three things you're grateful for at the end of the day. Many different ways you can do it. You have to find a way that's simple for you. But writing down two to three things a day can, again, change the way we look at situations. Three things a day can turn a negative person after something like 60 days to someone with a more positive outlook. And and the trick to writing gratitude so you still get that dopamine release because it does release dopamine is find the specifics in your day so you're not writing about the same thing. So instead of your health, 
Um, I was able to walk two miles today, you know, instead of your partner, what about your partner? Was it the way they smiled at you? Was it something they said to you? Was it something they did for you? Write about the specifics. So writing is one way you do it. And what we see with writing it down is the benefits of gratitude lasts six weeks to kind of two months longer than if we just think about it. But even thinking about it, waking up in the morning before you go to bed, think about three things in your day that were good. What were your wins? What are the things that you appreciate? Um, Making it a family practice around the dinner table. Everybody tell me two things, three things that you're grateful for today. My kids fought me on this for a long time, but I'm I'm persistent. And now, (laughs) now they do it and they like it and it leads to conversation. We can make it a family practice. I'm glad you say that though, because I think that a lot of parents might be listening to this entire podcast and, and be mm-hmm. thinking regarding your advice on their smartphone. Hey, you're not going to get a smartphone when you go to middle school. Sorry, I know your your brother did, but it's not going to happen. Um, you know, hey, we're not having the phone in our room when we go to sleep. We're going to talk about what we're grateful for. I think that a lot of parents are thinking, oh, this sounds great, but it's just not going to happen in my house or like they're kind of rolling their eyes. And I think what you're, what I'm taking away from you as a parent myself is this idea, no, you're the parent, you make the rules. And even if they don't like it at first, they'll get it eventually. And you're doing what's best for them. And it might be hard and it may not be easy, but just do it. Yes. And, you know, I say this all the time, we have to put on our big girl, big boy, big gender nonconforming panties on and just make the rules, you know, and know that it is going to be a battle often. Parenting is often a battle. And devices are our greatest battle in parenthood these days. But when you step into it, the rewards can be, I mean, tremendous. And not only that, we're looking at things that are dangerous to our kids, not only mental well-being, their physical well-being. We're seeing these rates of suicidal ideation and attempts increase. So isn't that enough to say, I'm, I'm going to do something that my kids aren't going to agree on? When you get that pushback, empathize with them. Empathy, empathy, empathy. I know this is hard for you. I know it sucks. It's hard for me too. I struggle with it too. We're going we're gonna to figure this out together. And it doesn't mean that there's no social media. It doesn't mean that there's no phones. We just need to figure out how to have a healthy relationship with it. Um, back to what you were saying also about about gratitude. Um, it does change the way that you look at things because we did this with my daughter. It was part of this treatment that we were doing actually for her allergy. My daughter's food allergies. And we were doing this as part of her treatment where every night I would say to her, okay, you need to tell me three things that you're grateful for. And if she didn't understand grateful, I'd say, well, what made you happy today? Can you give me three things that made you happy today? So we were doing it for a few days, a few weeks. And then eventually during the day, as she was doing something, she'd say, this is what I'm going to be grateful for, or this is what's making me happy, which means she's really understanding in real time that something's enjoyable. And remember how I said what you think about grows in your brain and how that happens faster with kids? You're seeing it right there in that example. Because if we have this as a regular practice, it changes how we look at life. We begin to look for those moments either because we know we're going to talk about it, write about it, whatever, but literally our brain becomes rewired to notice those things. And and it's really the simple things that make us feel satisfied. Um, Some of the other things I talk about in the book that have to do with contentment and feeling content, it's um, acceptance, our ability to accept situations that we can't change and how to do that. Self-compassion, how do we talk to ourselves? 
I always say, you know, if we talk to our friends the way we talk to ourselves, a lot of people wouldn't hang out with us. And, and those things can affect our ability to feel content. Connection is huge. Our connections with other people, investing in the relationships that are important in our life, giving back, connecting through giving back as well incredible um, rewards in terms of happiness. We know giving back releases a trifecta of mood elevating neurochemicals, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. So these things are accessible to many people. We just don't recognize the power it has over our life to create happiness. And part of that is like, if we look at those things that we're told bring happiness, those new levels, bigger house, you know, having the partner, all of those things when we get there have new challenges, right? So, you know, you have the bigger house, you have more expenses, you have uh, more right. things you need to decorate now. You find the partner and, you know, like I said on today's show, then you find out like they snore like a bore, <laughs> you know, you have to deal with that or, or there's personality differences. We need to know how to navigate the challenges when we get to that new level or acquire that thing or get into that really prestigious college and now you're in a higher competitive pool. How do we find happiness at that point? Those are the practices of contentment that I talk about in the book. When you talk about connectedness, I, I know that's something mm. that you talk about in your book and you just mentioned. The irony is that right now we have more opportunities to connect to people than ever. We've got smartphones, we've got text messages, but we do have social media, which lets you have these conversations with, oh, you know, 400 of your closest friends. <laughs> and, and yet, adults surveyed, and I guess, and I would imagine this is for kids as well, say that they've never had fewer friends and that they've never been spending more time alone. So what is going on there? Why is it that while we have this opportunity to connect online, I, I guess, is it the same type of thing where like this isn't real life? And it's not real connection, right? And and you and I talked about how I, I also, because we, we, measure our self-worth often by what we see on social media and the value of our life and the value of what we do, comparing it to other people. And I have to remind myself, your real life is not on social media. Your real life happens off social media. Live your real life off social media. Those are things I, I tell myself as an almost 47-year-old professional woman. So when we're looking at connections on social media, how many of those people would you call at three in the morning if you had a problem? You know, how many of those people really are your friends that know what's going on, that know the challenges you have in your life? They're superficial connections. We need to find the real ones and invest in those and spend time in those and have conversations that have to do with vulnerability in those relationships. Is there anything that you recommend like once a week, make a plan with a friend for mm -hmm. lunch or for going for a walk? Is there anything quantitative that you recommend? Absolutely. You know, and that's, that's one of the things that that was one of my new year's resolutions, or I say intentions because resolutions tend to fail. Um, I said, I'm going to have, take a walk with one friend who I really want to invest in our relationship a week that has grown to two to three now, mainly because my friends were like, I heard you're taking a walk with friends you care about. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a therapist. So people like to talk. Um, but, but I really enjoy it. Or Schedule, if you can't do once a week, at least start with something every two weeks, a coffee date, a lunch date, something that you have on your calendar, one that you have to look forward to because that creates contentment, but also where you're going to grow that relationship or do something with a friend. Maybe you like to do some sort of class together, you know, activity class or go get a manicure or 
I mean, I think walks are great because people tend to talk more vulnerably when you're not sitting face to face with them, staring at them. So there's a lot that comes out in walks and it's good for our physical health as well. So you and I talked about this study from Harvard. It spanned, I think, about eight decades. And it it looked at people's lives from when they were young, from when they were 18, 19 in college, all the way to when they were 80 years old. Mm-hmm. And it, what are the results of that? I, I know that that basically showed that the key to happiness were these relationships, right? Yeah. The thing about that study that was so impactful to me when I was learning it, especially as a mental health clinician, is that this was true from people who came from functional families and dysfunctional families, that no matter what background you came from, no matter what mental illness you struggle with, if you can find a way to connect genuinely in your relationships, you have hope for incredible well-being. That includes longevity. Physical health improves. Mental health improves. You live longer and you live happier. And and the reason being is because all these things that I talked about in our book, in my book, lower stress. They build resilience. So when you get into hard situations, you don't get stuck there. You don't get paralyzed. You, You find ways to be able to live your life in a healthy way. And when we lower stress in the body, one thing to know is that fight or flight response when we're stressed, the body takes seriously as a threat. And we compromise immune function, specifically, if you want specific NK cells, natural killer cells, things that help fight cancer and other types of diseases. We compromise that to lower stress. So if we're doing things that naturally lower stress, we're going to see a boost in our immune function. And that's why we're seeing people live longer and healthier. So no matter what background you come from, it is never too late to find um, a healthier life, to improve your well-being and your physical health. And that's, that to me was really hopeful in that study because you might think, well, I, I, I had parents who were dysfunctional. You know, I grew up with depression and anxiety. It is still true for you, and the study proves it. Bringing this back to social media, we're all on it, right? I mean, at, at this mm. point, it's about using it in a way that just is a little bit healthier for um, whether it be the teens and, and the impact it's having on their mental health or even as adults. So if you can connect with somebody on social media, it's you just recommend bring it into real life, get their actual phone yeah. number, you know, in a safe way, yes. of course. But, you know, yes. if you're like, oh, I like this person, I, I would, you know, I, I, and you're connecting and you're commenting on posts, et cetera, maybe go for coffee with them, actually make them your friend. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great way to navigate it. And there are positives to social media, but honestly, the more research that comes out, the positives don't outweigh the negatives right now in terms of what it's doing to our mental health. Connect with them or make it a point to connect with the people who are in your life. Look at your screen time. Be honest with it. How much time are you spending on these apps? And certainly set screen time limits for your teenagers, for your young kids. Be aware of how much time they're spending on different apps and how much they're actually living their real life off social media. That's really important that we're cognizant of that as parents and encourage that. If you're a parent and you feel like something's not right with your kid, where can you go? Start with your own network. Ask people. And this requires you to be vulnerable. But you'll see as soon as you're vulnerable, you'll start hearing from other parents who are dealing with the exact same thing. I can tell you as a therapist, regardless of background, socioeconomic, anything, parents are struggling with similar issues when it comes to their kids um, and mental health right now. 
So ask people, you know, does anyone have a recommendation for a therapist for my child? Um, get educated, read books yourself or ma- magazine articles or watch YouTube specials on kids and mental health and what you can do as a parent. Um, get parenting support for yourself. I, I've done that. Um, I've gone to professionals as a parent, as a professional who teaches parenting uh, for my own family, because there's so much to learn and we often don't see it in our own families. We see it for other people. And certainly psychologytoday.com is a great resource in finding a therapist in your area for your kids or, or a psychiatrist. I want to send everybody off on a high note, (laughs) feeling good. Do you have any kind of any positives, any words of wisdom? So we, so we could end this podcast with a smile. What, what I will say is we're all in this together. I know very few parents who are not struggling with this. We have to support each other. We have to have these conversations and it doesn't have to happen all overnight. We have a good amount of time to parent where we can begin to implement these things gradually and have these conversations. And one of the most beautiful things you can do is learning how to connect with your child as a replacement behavior. What do they like to do? What can you plan together one-on-one? Because those, those moments when you experience that make this all worth it. And we can't lose sight of that. There's so many other things that we can enjoy in parenting that will offset the battles that we're facing. All right, uh, Nero Feliciano, I am grateful to you, uh, actively grateful right now that you took the time to talk to us uh, about this really important topic. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for all that both of you are doing and for having these conversations that are so important and to help us all not feel so alone. Once again, a huge thank you to Nero Feliciano, a cognitive psychotherapist and a best-selling author of this book, Won't Make You Happy, Eight Keys to Finding True Contentment. You can connect with Nero on her website. That's NeroFeliciano.com and also on Instagram at Nero underscore Feliciano. See, there are some good things about social media. We also put a link to her book and her website in the show notes for this podcast. A huge thank you to everybody for listening. And just a great reminder for us all to call a friend, make a plan to see them in person, go for a walk, and put your phone down every once in a while. I know it is easier said than done. Okay, bye, everybody. And thank you so much for listening. 